0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest Truth and Consequences podcast, and this week I am really honored to uh, be joined by Rosa Brooks, uh, who is an old friend. We served on a board together years and years ago, uh, and she hosted an event for me once when I was a fellow at New America, so a belated thank you for all of that. Uh, I want to just uh, say she's a law professor at Georgetown University Law School, author of Tangled Up in Blue, and uh, after you read her book, you'll see one of the more accomplished people, she puts us all to shame with all she's done in her life. Which we can talk about another time, but today we're gonna to talk about policing. And this is a rather extraordinary book about Rose's experience um, becoming a police officer in Washington, DC. So can you just maybe quickly force Rose to sort of summarize, um, why did you decide to become a cop? What, 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 what motivated you to do it?
1: So people keep asking me that question. I still don't have a really good answer. Uh, my family thought I was nuts. Um, and, and I think the honest answer is just curiosity. When I found out that DC has this program where you can volunteer, anyone can volunteer to go through the police academy and become a sworn armed police officer you know a lot of cities have auxiliary programs where people can volunteer and they're you know helping direct traffic at big events and stuff but but DC's program you actually become a police officer with the same police powers that full-time officers have and i just thought that's nuts that's insane i can't believe that program exists that's crazy you know you're going to give a law professor a gun like <laughs> don't do that um So, and and as soon as I found out about it, I just thought, I thought that would be so fascinating. You know, the world of policing, I think for those of us on the outside, can seem very closed, very, very opaque. And, you know, what an opportunity to be able to see what it looks like on the inside and and how police officers make sense of their roles. And, you know, and, you know, I come from a progressive background, Lots of people, pretty much everybody I know, is critical policing. And I do think there's a lot that should be changed. But I also think that if you want to change something, it sure helps to understand it first.
0: Yeah. And this was something I was struck by. I was thinking about this a lot when I read the book, whether this is a sympathetic portrayal of the police. Um And and I'm actually curious what you think. Do you think this is a sympathetic portrayal of, of police?
1: I do. I do. I mean, and... Police officers are human beings, you know, and and like most of us, most cops get out of bed in the morning and think, you know, I, I want to do some good today, I'd like to do some good, or I sure don't want to do any harm. You know, there are bullies and sadists in police departments, just as there are in every other world, uh, and they shouldn't be there, but most cops aren't which doesn't mean that even good normal policing can't do harm sometimes sure. by replicating or, or, or amplifying existing social and economic disparities, particularly along racial lines. Um, that's true, but that doesn't mean that the cops themselves are doing something wrong or trying to do anything other than helping. And no, I, I see it as a as a book that is, very sympathetic to the the human experience of trying to be a good police officer in a world that makes that really difficult. Um, and and so the book tells stories about a lot of the people I met and the encounters I had. And and I think the vast majority of them are are more flattering
0: than not. So this is the. One, I remember this one point in the book, you say that most people become cops if they want to help people, which actually, when I think about it, doesn't really surprise me all that much, but that does really run counter to, I think, the media portrayals that we have of the police. I mean, beyond that point, the one thing that I kept coming across in the book was how many of these encounters, you know, were not, that you had with civilians, with people who were accused of crimes, was, were not conflictual, that, that the police often yeah. tried to find ways to resolve them without arresting people, in part because they didn't want to, they didn't want to, you know, file out didn't want to fill out paperwork but also because they just didn't didn't see a need to arrest people and tried to avoid it when possible and so did that surprise you i mean did you expect to have that kind of experience you know being a member of the police force And do you know
1: on the on i sort of intellectually knew that but you there's a difference between kind of knowing something intellectually and sort of really feeling it uh from personal experience and i do think we're all shaped by you know hollywood and media representations of police where, you know, it's all car chases and shootings and homicide investigations and police beating up suspects and, you know, and all of those things happen, uh, the good and the bad, but the vast majority of, of the work that the vast majority of police officers do the vast majority of the time, is much more mundane for better or for worse. And it often doesn't involve crimes. You know, it, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Often it's responding to, you know, there's a noisy group of teenagers smoking pot on the corner. Um, you know, there's my neighbor's party is too loud and my kids can't sleep. Uh, you know, it's family disputes that are angry and upset, but aren't violent and, and, I do think people don't realize that. And, and I also think that in the conversation about over policing in poor minority communities, one thing that gets lost is that part of that, you know, it's, it's a, it's partly a supply and demand issue. You know, it, it's caught up with all these other things. It's caught up with defunding of other social services. It's caught up with the legacy of racism, structural racism, all kinds of other things. But among, you know, among other things, cops, the 911 calls come in. And cops go to them and people call the police for all kinds of things that aren't crimes and the cops go and they try to figure out, you know, how to sort things out or help people get along or they go talk to the noisy neighbor and say, hey, could you turn it down their kids trying to sleep or whatever it may be. Uh, and I, you know, that that there are things that policing does in this country that hurt people, no question about it, right. but there are also a lot of things that police do that, that help people and I think that gets lost too.
0: Right, so actually this, this jumped ahead to a question I had because there was this quote that that I circled and I kept coming back to where you said, the over-policing of poor uh, black communities is also fueled by high demand for police services from members yeah. of these same communities. When other social service uh, goods and services are absent or scarce, police become the default solution to an astonishingly wide range of problems. And that's kind of yeah. what you're getting at there, that, that in a sense, you're more than a police officer, you're kind of like a, a social worker, you're kind of a mediator, you're doing all kinds of different roles at once.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, there's, there are parallels here. My, my last book before Tangled Up in Blue was called How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Uh, and I often thought as I was working on this book that it could be called How Everything Became Crime and Police Became Everything, because it's very similar phenomenon going on where you get this vicious circle. Um, you know, we defund and disinvest best from, from social services, mental health services, education, uh, you know, shelter for people who don't have homes, you name it, um, which means that people can't turn to those Anymore and expect them to be effective, right. which means that the only government representative left is the cops, which means that they call the cops for more and more things, which means that police budgets have to go up because the, you know, the chief poli- chief of police says to the city council, you know, we got all these 911 calls. We have to respond. We need more cops because we're trying to keep up with all these calls and that circle then keeps going around because then you don't have enough money for the other social services. So that's the. The trap that we 're caught in, um, I do think that cops have a kind of impossible job right now because we want them to you know be medics, we want them to be mentors, we want them to be mediators, we want them to be warriors, we want them to be protectors, and doing any one of those things well is really, really hard, doing all of them in the space of a single shift, nobody is good at that um, that being said, and you know maybe i don't i don't want to jump ahead of your questions michael but but I think that's actually that's the route into a much better conversation and a less defensive conversation on the part of cops uh, that I think a lot of advocates for defunding the police are trying to get at. Um, You know, if you say defund the police to somebody in the 7th District in D.C. where I was assigned, they look at you and they say, have you, excuse me, have you seen our station? It's falling Right. Have you seen my car? Have you seen my equipment? You know, are you out of your mind? You want to take you want me to do all the things that I'm doing already with too few resources and you want to take money away, you know, drop dead. Um, if you change that conversation and you instead say to cops, hey, what are the things that you do that you don't think you should have to do? You know, tell me about the calls that you respond to that you're like, this is crazy. You know, you shouldn't need a cop to respond to this or this is crazy. I've brought that guy to the emergency psychiatric clinic 10 times and he's back on the street the next day every single time. Why isn't there a better longer term mental health care solution? Right. You know. And then I think you actually start finding a lot a lot of common ground between police themselves and critics of policing to have a very healthy conversation about, hey, what are the priorities in this community You know, are we funding? Does our budgeting reflect those priorities? If it doesn't, you know, what's the pathway there? You know, it's not just slash budgets for police. It's, you know, how do we reinvest where we need to? You know, how do we shift tasks if that's appropriate? And that I think I do think there's a lot of common ground there.
0: Well, so that brings a question because a lot a lot of your book talks about the training that you receive to become a reserve police officer. Uh, to what extent do you think that the training you receive and that police receive in general prepares them for the kind of things you're talking about, for the kind of experiences they have out on the street?
1: Yeah, not that well. And I, I should say that the DC Police Academy has improved uh, in numerous ways, even in the five years since I went through it. And um, uh, in part because of feedback the department got from some of the young officers in in a fellowship program that that we created between Georgetown and MPD um which I'd love to tell you about later but but putting that aside here, <laughs> yeah um you know so so but certainly when I went through the academy at the time um the emphasis was On memorization on tactics, right? You know, memorize this list of vehicular offenses, uh, memorize these procedures, um, learn to recite and carry out the steps to handcuff a prone prisoner versus a kneeling prisoner versus a standing prisoner. Um, but we didn't talk about any of these hard issues, like what's policing for? You know, what is good policing? Yeah. Do we know it when we see it? Do we, do we know how to measure it? Um, what causes spikes in crime? What are the theories about that? What kinds of policing do we know anything about what kinds of policing actually prevent crime right. as opposed to respond after the fact, uh, you know, race and policing, policing and violence, you know, we weren't having those conversations. And I also think, you know, we weren't having enough conversations. This is something I think has also changed, um, At the time we weren't having enough conversations about de-escalation skills, about how to use verbal skills to reduce aggression, to minimize the likelihood that any given encounter will turn bad, you know, how to use good tactics to get, to slow things down so that both the officers and everybody else involved have the time to react calmly rather than out of panic.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I remember writing about this a couple of years ago. Um, when you, Look at the video of a lot of the, the, the shootings that have, have, have gotten national attention. You know, one of the things that happens quite often is that police, rather than find ways to calm the situation down, actually make it worse. They actually kind of amp everything up. They, uh, they say they, they become aggressive when they should deescalate. I mean, to what extent is that becoming a thing now in Washington DC where officers are being trained to deescalate rather than, you know, immediately go for their gun or, or immediately be aggressive when they're dealing with somebody?
1: I'm sorry. How much
0: do you see police like learning those kinds of tactics? Yeah. Be escalation tactics. No, I
1: mean, I, I actually think, look, I, I think the DC police department compared to many is, is a good department. Um, and one of the things I think that makes it a pretty good department is that it has a leadership that is responsive to change and, you know, there's responsive to criticism and takes it seriously and, and does try to be a learning organization. And it's got a lot of great officers, uh, and great people at every level. It's got some duds, no question. Right. Um, but it's got a lot of great people too. And, and I do think that the, the academy curriculum has begun to really emphasize, uh, you know, through more, more role play and scenario based training to really emphasize, Hey, how could you handle that differently? Um, you know, and, and there's a, this is an area actually where I wish the police budget could cover more you know DC has a you know tactical training center which is kind of a mock mock block a mock town right city street with you know a bar and a school and things like that and you know it's where officers practice everything from sort of active shooter training to to uh ordinary encounters and the instructors there are actually pretty fabulous at pushing officers to say why were you running in there assuming that things were violent with your gun out or shouting at people, you know, instead of instead of taking the time, you know, hey, there was cover right over there. You could have looked and waited a few minutes to see what was going on, you know, Um, or hey, you know, did you see in that scenario that we just acted out how you yelled at me and I got pissed and I got aggressive, whereas in this other scenario we ran with other people. You know, they treated me respectfully and I responded respectfully. And, and I think that that kind of, you know, trouble is a DC, it's, 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 it's cost intensive
0: right. to do
1: that kind of scenario based training. Uh, and so officers still don't get enough of it, but, but it really does help.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is something, uh, I, I was thinking about with the training issue and I, <laughs> we, we got some Twitter traffic over this over the weekend about, I wrote this piece on Friday talking about how, you know, officers are trained. You talk about this in the book. They're trained to see to see danger everywhere and to be constantly on guard about about being uh, ambushed or being uh, attacked by somebody they're ta- they're interviewing, and that puts them on sort of a hair trigger. And it, yeah. you sort of argued that, it, and I've heard this argument before from criminologists that it it makes school, uh, police shootings more likely because they're so trained for danger that that as soon as something happens that's sort of out of the out of the norm or unusual, they overreact to it. Um yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing to, to tell people, you know, you, as it is now, we tell cops your first job is to go home safe at night. And you were sort of suggesting in the book, well, maybe that shouldn't be the first priority. Maybe the first priority should be actually protect people and be willing to, to, you know, put your life on the line to protect somebody because that's kind of what the job is. Uh, how does that argument yeah, go is. over with other cops when you, when you make that?
1: So yeah, a lot of cops hear that and they get really defensive. And they say, this is a dangerous job. I know somebody who was killed, you right. know, or they say, well, what am I supposed to do if somebody draws on me, you know, or they say, um, you know, hey, uh, I absolutely protect other people and take risks to protect other people. How dare you say otherwise? And, and I think it's, it is hard to get people to kind of you know, slow down. Again, <laughs> slowing down is always good.
0: Right. Uh,
1: and think about it. You know, I think most cops do believe you ask them, they'll say, yeah, I do believe the primary mission is to protect the communities we serve. And going home safe is not the primary mission. It's something everybody wants to do. Uh, and I want to do it too, of course. And I will defend myself just as I will defend others if I do face a situation where there's lethal force. And that's totally appropriate, you know, completely appropriate. But I think the question is really in, in a way, and, and Michael, you have a book about the ways in which the United States has exaggerated certain risks, foreign policy risks, such as the risk of terrorism in ways that have really distorted our policies. It's, it's very similar. You know, if you, if you imagine that, you know, 90% of the people you encounter would love to kill you and will do it the second they have an opportunity and that they all probably have guns stuck in their waistbands, right. you're going to treat people one way. If you think to yourself, that totally could happen. It totally could happen, but it probably won't. It's actually statistically quite rare uh, for cops to get killed on the job. And so, you know, when you see somebody reaching for something and you don't know what it is, is your default assumption, oh my God, gun, reaching for gun, better shoot first. Or is your default assumption, probably not reaching for a gun, probably reaching for a cell phone, probably reaching for a wallet, slow down, calm down. Uh, you know, that's the issue. And, and it's not just the problem with, with shootings. I mean, I do think when you look closely at a lot of the really awful and tragic police shootings, um, you know, like Philando Castile, for instance, in Minneapolis, uh, he African American, American guy carrying a, a legal registered firearm. He gets pulled over for a traffic stop. He says politely to the officer, you know, officer, I do have a weapon in the car. I have a legally registered firearm. You know, and I can show you the registration papers. He, he reaches, and the cop panics and kills him. Right. Um, you know, right. it's it's fear that you know, and and what a tragedy that officer. You know, I I believe that that officer wasn't thinking I'm a sadist. I want to shoot him, but it's poor training and panic uh, leads to that kind of thing. And those are terrible. But I actually think that the attention that we rightly give to shootings like that um, and sometimes makes us not talk about the more subtle ways in which that being primed to see everything as threat can affect policing. You know, it affects who is perceived as a threat, who gets stopped, who gets frisked. It affects the tone police officers take with people, you know, and the degree to which they confront people with aggression versus calmness and friendliness and so on, you know, so, so and those harms are more diffuse and it's obviously a lot better to have a cop be rude to you while you're stopped at risk than to be shot. Um, but you know, being treated rudely, being stopped, is somewhere between inconvenient and humiliating and terrifying for people. And they carry that with them after that event is over. You know, so so I do think that if you go into it exaggerating with an exaggerated sense of risk, you're gone you're not gonna behave all that well and you're gonna make your decision making is gonna be distorted.
0: Can you? T- I mean, there's an experience that you recount in the book about uh, responding to a burglar alarm that went off and, and coming across a kid who sort of popped his head out of the shower. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how easily that could have gone in a different direction?
1: Yeah. So it was the kind of call that you get all the time. Um, burglar alarm had gone off and the dispatcher told us it was an apartment that was supposed to be empty. So my partner and I get there, and I was very, very new to patrolling. I was, you know, a month or two out of the academy. I can't remember; it wasn't very much. Um, my partner was a former marine uh, and a very calm guy, um, and you know, I think actually being marine probably made him calmer. Right. Uh, you know, he he didn't think this was as dangerous as other situations he'd been in. So so we we get there, we see that the door is ajar uh, of the apartment, and the room inside is dark and the door is ajar. And obviously, you know, that could mean that there is a burglary in progress and there are armed burglars inside the apartment. So he draws his weapon and puts it down at his side and I do the same thing. And we kind of tiptoe into the dark living room. And all of a sudden at the far end of the room, a light comes on and a figure kind of pops out, silhouetted by light behind them. So you can't really see the figure other than just like a male shape pops out and then disappears again. Um, and my partner just said in a very calm voice, he said, Hey there, it's, it's MPD, it's Metropolitan Police. Um, would you mind stepping out so I can see you? And we hear this voice, this sort of panicky voice says, I can't. And my partner says, how come? You know, why not? And the voice says, uh, I just got out of the shower. I'm naked. <laughs> um, and my partner says, well, you know, you think you could, you know, maybe put a towel on or something. And the voice says, oh, okay, okay. And a couple seconds later, a kid comes out. He's maybe 14, 15, 16, I don't know, teenager. Um, And he's got a towel wrapped around his waist and he's dripping wet and his eyes are like saucers. Uh, and you know, we put our guns back in the holster and we called, we got the dispatcher to call his dad and it all got straightened out. The father just hadn't realized the kid was going to be there, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no issue, not even a police report because from a policing perspective, nothing happened, right? We, we checked it out. There was, you know, no burglary, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but it, it just struck me so often how with an officer like the guy who killed Philando Castile,
0: Absolutely. You know, if
1: he'd been in that situation, I think there would have been a dead kid, you know, and I, we were all lucky that something like that didn't happen. And and I think, you know, that's a testament to, you know, good, calm officers who don't expect, who, who don't have a default of everybody's going to try to kill me. Uh, you know, I mean, he, my, my 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 partner could have been wrong, right? He could have been wrong. And in that case, if he had been wrong, one of us could have been dead. But I do think, you know, lawyers say these kind of nerdy things like who bears the costs of mistakes. Um, sure. And if a police officer makes a mistake in misreading the degree of threat, and someone has, there's a cost to pay and someone pays that cost, I do think it's right for society to expect that the people who are paid and trained to take risks should bear the cost of those mistakes, rather than, say, a kid who just got out of the shower in his dad's apartment.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, somebody comment. I, I, we posted this on, on Friday, and somebody made this comment about, well, it's just, you know, a, a civilian's job is to to not have anything in their hands and to be polite to the police. I thought to myself, like, is that really true? I mean, I don't know that I think I, I mean, obviously, it's better to be that way. But I, I feel like it's something very strange about the burden being put on a civilian to do yeah. everything perfectly in that situation, rather than the highly trained police officer who is, you know, Te- supposed to some, technically de the situation or, or try to create, you know, yeah. prevent something bad from happening. So I, I do think that I, I, it's a, it's a hard thing to argue. I realize that, but I, there is something about the, the idea that, and I, and I was struck by this in reading your book, that how many, you used to watch videos of cops being ambushed and you'd watch them in your free time. It's like a constant refrain. I have to think that that has an effect. I also wonder, you know, how much does it have an effect that that, uh, and I remember talking to someone about this in Chicago years ago, who made this point that Chicago police take thousands of guns every year, legal guns off the street. You have to obviously be concerned when you're a cop that anybody that you stop could be holding a weapon in their hand, could have a weapon. And that I, I think makes policing in this country very different from any other country in the world.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, no question about it. This is a, this is a violent country. Um, and, and much of that, most of the lethal violence in this country is gun violence? Um, uh, you know we're awash in guns, and that makes everybody more vulnerable. No question about it.
0: So I want to. I know you have to if you finish up. You know you have a, a hard stop in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you this one story that has stuck with me ever since I read your book. Um, and this was a story of a family. Uh, Zari and Darius were the children, and the mother was Deandre. And you, you made a call there because the, the mother Deandre had had suffered would appear to be some domestic abuse. You just talk a little do you tell, do you mind just telling the story? Yeah, of I mean, this, this, was this, oh,
1: this was a story that was just so wrenching in so many ways. Yes. Um, um, we got a call for an assault and we, we pull up in this kind of a, a housing development, you know, apartment blocks and we go to the address. It's the wrong address. We're sort of wandering around the parking lot trying to figure out, you know, nobody seems to be you know we were told that there was blood you know <laughs> and we we're like "Whoa, that's bad um but we don't see anybody and, and then this little girl um couldn't have been more than 13 might have been 11 or 12 you know comes up to us she's got a little boy with her and she says excuse me and she says i'm the person who called the police um it's my mother who's hurt and she leads us to another apartment um and we say, you know, D- do you live here? And she says, no, you know, we live, we live with a relative. Um, We don't live with our mother. Um, But she, she, you know, somebody punched her and she's, she's hurt, badly hurt. So, so the door opens and a woman who is clearly very drunk and or, well, she was holding a beer and she's drinking it and she may have been on some other things as well, comes out and she's sort of, goes back and forth between being irritated, you know, why are you bring the police to my house and, 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 okay, okay, fine. I'll let you examine me. We called, you know, called for the medics to come and, you know, she, she had, it. you know, her whole face was swollen. Her lip was bleeding. Right, right. Um, um, But she mostly kept saying, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing. And, and the kids kept saying, no, mom, you know, please let the medics look at you. And she was like, why are you doing this? And, and the little girl said, because we care about you, mom. And, you know, again, sort of nothing happened in this. Nothing happened. She didn't go to the hospital. You know, she just she just had a swollen jaw and swollen swollen lips. Um, she told us, and the kids gave us a little bit more information about the assault and the the possible name of the guy who'd done it, and so on. And and but not really enough to act on. Right. Um, um, and we ended up, you know, leaving, just saying, you know, call us if you see him again, if you learn anything more about him. Um, you know, we'll do some asking around, see if anybody else knows somebody with this description. But it, it was pretty vague, to be honest. Uh, um, and we left. And the the girl and her brother were kind of plaintively st- standing outside their mother's door. And, you know, it's not a story about heroic policing or, or a terrible crime. It's, it was just one of those painful moments where you know, you saw a a really courageous and together little kid trying to take care of of her pretty dysfunctional mom, and it was just it was just very poignant.
0: I thought, you know, you said in the next, I think it was the next page, next next chapter, that that the biggest occupational hazard to being a police officer is cynicism, and I just sort of wonder how do you. How do you walk away from sort of experience like that, seeing a thirteen year old basically acting like a parent and a parent acting like a child and knowing those children, you know, obviously have a difficult life. How do you compartmentalize that? How do you sort of, you know, not let it plague you as you when you do the job?
1: Well, I think I mean to me it's it's that you remember that that you know that there is good in most people, even the people who are being jerks and committing crimes, um, and that most people, even in the most crime-ridden communities, are not committing crimes. The vast majority of the people, you know, that, that if you broke it down, and, and there has been research done on this, um, I, won't, I don't have the stats at my fingertips, but essentially it's like a pyramidal structure. You know, if you look at crime in a given neighborhood... Um, you'll find that a very small percentage of the people are committing a very large percentage of the crimes at particularly the serious crimes. And, you know, that's at the top of the pyramid. You've got the people who are pretty hardcore uh, and who can cause a huge amount of suffering within that community. But the vast majority of people, you know, they're just, they're just like that little girl. They want their families to be safe. They, you know, that they, 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 they go to school, they go to work. And, and I do think, it's cops, it can have a hard time remembering that just because by definition, you know, people don't call you to invite them to invite you to birthday parties and high school graduations and the happy moments in their life. They call 911 when they're in great distress, where they're incredibly angry, something is falling apart, going wrong. So you see that over and over. You see all the bad stuff and you rarely see the happy moments. You don't get, you don't see the mundane moments where normal people are living their lives and, you know, hugging their kids and helping them with their homework. You don't see that. And I do think it is, it is hard for police sometimes when you see so much bad stuff to remember that that's not the only thing there is
0: and do you, i mean do you, and and do you think that it can really affect policing i mean does it does it, you talk in the book a little bit about some of the some of the you know epithets that some of the officers used to hurl against some of the residents and so you, you said again you were in 7D which is one of the, the the most primary districts you know in Washington DC some of the officers you know did seem to to take it out on on in some ways in some of the civilians yeah. i mean do you think how you do you know, Yeah, how much of that did you Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there have been some studies on trauma in police officers and, um, cops do get really traumatized, right? And it's a really macho culture in which you're not supposed to say, Hey, that really shook me up or wow, I I don't know how to cope with that really difficult experience. I've just had, you're supposed to have, you know, stiff upper lip and be, be tough. Um, um, but you know, police, you find dead bodies, you see people abusing children, you know, I mean, just, just bad stuff and stuff that is traumatizing to a normal human being. And a lot of cops, you know, I think this is something that has gotten much better in the last decade or two, in terms of destigmatizing mental health services for police officers, but We've got a long way to go and, and for people who don't seek help, you know, that sort of builds up and it makes people tenser, It makes people cynical. It makes people angry and rude. Um, you know, and at the same time in really high crime communities, you have a lot of traumatized people there too, right? Sure. People who have seen shootings, Absolutely. who are victims of abuse, et cetera. And when you, you that's a kind of combustible mix when, you know, traumatized cops who don't realize they're traumatized and traumatized community members, you know, a lot of stuff can go wrong there. And it's worth saying, I think that, um, you know, suicide kills more police officers each year than every other on-duty cause of death combined. Uh, and right. that's one of the consequences, I think, of the the amount of trauma that, that police go, go through.
0: And you've seen that, of course, people who, who um, members of the military have come home from war, the high suicide rates for those yeah. who. Yeah. yeah. I that no, out. and it, it's,
1: you know, I think, I think that the leadership of the DC police department has done a really good job of sort of modeling, Hey, you know what? It's okay to be shaken up by these experiences. It's okay to talk to somebody I get shaken up too, you know, in here, you know, I, I think that modeling that at a senior level makes a big difference, but I still think it's, it's so deeply ingrained in police culture that you're, you know, you're weak or you're a whiner, if you show that it affected you and, and that that's going to take a long time to, to get past, uh, you know, people don't want to ask for help.
0: Sure. Um, so before you go, I just want to you could talk just a, for a second or two about about the program that you developed with uh, the police department in DC, the fellowship program, because it sounds like a fairly innovative and exciting idea that you got from. I assume you you, you you figured out even when when you were still in training, it's something that would be worthwhile to do.
1: Yeah, you know, as I said earlier, one of the things that was most striking in in the police academy was all the things that we didn't talk about, um, you know, race, uh, violence and policing, you know, the role of police. And it struck me, you know, it seemed to me that that's not because cops don't care about those things. Um, A lot of officers, I think, want to talk about those things, um, but there's no safe space for them to do so. And a lot of officers want to engage in a constructive way with critics of policing, but there's no safe space for them to do so in a really polarized environment where, where the culture can be very, either you're with us or you're against us. Um, and, uh, you know, this is another reason that I, I think Metropolitan Police Department DC is, is, is a really good department in terms of not being perfect, but being willing to change, um, you know, went to them with this idea for a program where young officers would apply to be selected as fellows, uh, and they would, Participate in pretty intensive workshops organized by by myself and my colleagues at Georgetown um, on, on all those hard issues. Um, and this, they might the department might have shot this down, but they they really embraced it and have really supported it. We're now in our third cohort of fellows, and the conversations that happen have been pretty amazing. I you know I know this sounds kind of corny, um, but you know I'm, I'm a teacher, and. It's just so cool when (laughs) you put people in a room together, people who start out thinking we have nothing in common. We have nothing to say to each other. And they come out of that room at the end saying, I never thought of it that way. Huh? I feel like my eyes have been opened to some things that I didn't see and didn't understand, or even maybe, maybe I still don't agree with you, but I think I understand your perspective you know, because we had put them in rooms with local high school kids, with community activists, with homelessness rights advocates, with scholars, you know, and, and in situations that often were really challenged, the stories police tell about themselves. Sure. And those are hard conversations. Um, we also put our law students often in conversations with cops and they had a learning curve too, right? Uh, you know, they often came out of it too, thinking I had these stereotypes about police and policing, and this has really shattered those stereotypes. So so it's pretty amazing. And and we have a sister program modeled on ours in New Orleans and a number of other cities that have reached out to us to ask for assistance in designing similar programs. It's not a panacea, you know, and there are a lot of other stuff we do at Georgetown that is focused on more systemic change. Um, But... But I do think that both it you know it helps to nurture a new generation, a rising generation of police officers who will be leaders someday, and I hope will be really good leaders who think in a in a transformational way about policing
0: you know I'll just say just that the the point you make about sort of eroding some of the stereotypes about police i mean I thought that was one of the really great takeaways from your book that you know. We have, I think over the last year, we had a lot a big conversation about police, but it's often been a very black and white conversation, forgive the, the pun, but it, ha- it kind of has been, it's a sort of, it's, it's an all or nothing thing, and I think, you know, reading the, your book just, and getting an understanding that we put a lot of burden on police, we ask a lot of them, uh, and they often do a better job than we realize, and they often do a lot more work than we realize, and uh, we should sort of recognize that we have these conversations about about defunding the police, reforming. Well, the
1: police. and 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 I think also recognize something that was really borne in on me um, that you know police don't operate in a vacuum. They they enforce laws they didn't create. In a Absolutely. social context, they can't do much to change. And often, what what we don't like about what police do is you know we have to kind of look in the mirror. Um, you know, it's the result of you know people we voted for. Passing sometimes really stupid laws, you know, overzealous prosecutors, judges who give sentences that are too high—you name it. You know, the 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 it's 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 easy to sort of think, oh, if we could just get rid of the police, you know, the problems would all go away. Um, but on you know, the, the problems are really the racism, economic inequality is really baked into the system, and that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot that police departments can and should change. Uh, about the way they operate, but, but I think it, it does mean that the, you know, the, the situation is a lot more complicated than, right. than critics of policing sometimes, sometimes will acknowledge.
0: And that's right. And I think also, I mean, you, you make the point that like the, the police, you're, you're always worth as officer that you're going to, you're going to break some kind of regulation and get in trouble with the, with the, with the leadership. And that always, that, so there's all these pressures on police, whether it's societal pressure, whether it's pressure from inside the organization. You know pressure from from you know their spare officers, pressure from um, they failed the street. it's a lot, and uh, I just appreciate your book for sort of giving us a more complicated, a more contextual sense of what it's like to be a police officer these days in in a major city. so anyway, thank you so much, Rosa, for coming on. This was a great conversation. I really.
1: Pleasure, Michael, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much.